This is I Choose Life News and Views, sponsored by Indiana Right to Life and Right to Life of Northeast Indiana, committed to defending innocent human life for all people of all ages. Your hosts are Kathy Humbarger, Abigail Lorenzen, and Scott Kump. Welcome to I Choose Life News and Views. I'm Kathy Humbarger. I'm Abigail Lorenzen. And I'm Scott Kump. I Choose Life News and Views is produced by Bot Radio Network in Fort Wayne in cooperation with Indiana Right to Life as well as Right to Life of Northeast Indiana. And now, the pro-life news. More developments regarding whole women's health in South Bend. The abortion clinic had challenged Indiana's abortion regulations and licensing process and has been permitted for some time to operate without a license, at least until the suit is resolved. Now the suit has been partially resolved, but is still continuing through the court system. On Friday, October 9th, Indiana Southern District Senior Judge Sarah Evans Barker upheld some of Indiana's regulatory laws, but allowed the challenge to continue against other laws. Kathy, there's a lot to unpack here. There absolutely is, Scott. The first thing of significance is that Judge Barker ruled in the favor of pro-life legislation. This is almost unheard of. Hmm. Uh, There are a lot of reasons why we think that happened, but that would probably take longer to unpack than we have time. So even though this was a split decision, overall, we consider this good news? Absolutely. Judge Barker was determining what to do with a case that had been filed by Whole Women's Health, challenging basically every regulation that legislators have passed in the state of Indiana over a decade. So everything that was in the lawsuit had been in place and been enforced over the years. But Whole Women's Health enters the scene and decides to challenge all of those regulations. And they pretty much had to because they never met a regulation they they liked and right. you know, basically were at it, acting in bad faith in a lot of ways that we just don't have time to well, get into. Whole Woman's Health had made it clear when they applied for a license to open in South Bend that they chose Indiana so they would have standing to challenge our regulations because Indiana is known for having the most regulations and the most enforceable regulations. So they picked this fight. So Judge Barker's ruling allowed to stand a lot of the regulations, including the fact that the state had the authority to license abortion facilities, requiring abortionists to report the abortions they do and various details about the abortion, requiring abortion providers to have admitting privileges at a hospital in the area that they do abortions or have a relationship with a doctor that does, requiring that women have an ultrasound at least 18 hours before the abortion that they're seeking, and just a variety of other common sense measures. So the big question on the table still is how does this impact whole women's health in South Bend? Some of the listeners may remember that there was a case that was heard before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals where whole women's health asked the court to order in the Indiana State Department of Health to let them open, even though their license application had been denied. So the Seventh Circuit agreed to order the Indiana State Department of Health to allow Owens Health to open with a provisional license. That was appealed up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court did not hear it. Hmm. So the general consensus was that once this ruling came out, we would know how that impacted Owens Health in South Bend. However, What I'm learning from people who have more expertise in law than I would ever hope to, 
they're explaining to me that the ultimate decision now, or the next decision, I should say, will be made at trial in March of 2021. So even though the state has the right to license abortion facilities, that doesn't impact Holman's health because of the different license that the Seventh Circuit required the Indiana State Department of Health to issue them. So, so at, at least until March 2021, they Whole continue Women's to Health operate. is without and, a license. And then, yeah, right. Well, with a, this so-called provisional license. Which doesn't exist in which Indiana. Which doesn't exist in Indiana. So depending on what the outcome is at that trial, the loser will more than likely appeal to the Seventh Circuit, and we'll go through this all again. Well, speaking of judges and speaking of the Supreme Court, anybody know, who's been paying attention knows that that is a big issue right now. Right. And speaking of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Amy Coney Barrett is a sitting judge on that Court of Appeals, and she has been tapped by President Trump to fill the recently vacated seat of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So there have been contentious hearings going on, even as we record this. It is our anticipation that she will be approved and uh, will be an excellent arbiter of the pro-life challenges that come before her as she lines them up with the Constitution. And that's what we've asked for all along. Today we have with us a guest who's new to the show, an exciting new friend to be making here. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Rex, and she is a Catholic bioethicist. I want to tell you a little bit about her just to give you some background, and I'll let her fill in some gaps for me too here. She is a mother, very involved in the pro-life movement, has two adopted children herself with her husband, and also is the president of the Children's First Foundation that promotes and supports adoption as a positive choice for unplanned pregnancies. Like I mentioned, a Catholic bioethicist and teaches that at the graduate level and to seminarians, has been doing that for five years, and also a prominent voice in favor of the morality of embryo adoption including in regards to the Catholic teachings, so the Catholic catechism, and specifically drawing on Donum Vitae for support for embryo adoption. Thanks, Dr. Rex, for joining us today. We are happy to have your expertise on the program. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. So some of you who listen to the program regularly, this is not the first time that you're hearing about embryo adoption. Um, We dealt with it August 8th. So if you missed the program on August 8th, 2020, you can go to ichooselife.org and under the radio programs, go to past episodes and find an episode called A Snowflake Named Hannah. That was an interview that we did with the Streggy family. Hannah is the very first embryo ever adopted. So she and her parents were on the program with us. Dr. Rex, you've been in conversation with the Streggies as well during the course of their journey. And so we have a kind of a nice, cohesive set of programs happening here. Absolutely. I'm very grateful. I think they may have mentioned me to you and Mm -hmm. you invited me to come on because this is not a Catholic or a Christian-only topic. This is a civil human rights issue that is of great importance. And as you mentioned, my husband and I have two adopted children And we were looking into adoption when I became pregnant at age 45. I gave birth to my son. (laughs) And uh, we looked at each other and said, wow, looking into adoption works. Let's try that again. (laughs) (laughs) Then we proceeded to adopt our two other children. 
So we've been through adoption twice, through the courts, through the whole process, as even the Strages mentioned. There was no such thing for embryos. Had I known about embryo adoption, but that was back, our son was born in 1994. Hannah wasn't born until 1998. Our adopted daughter was born a week later on January 9th, 1999. So they're only a week apart. So let's start with a couple of definitions, Dr. Rex, to help people sort of put the puzzle pieces on the table. We're going to define a couple of things here. We're going to define in vitro fertilization and state what the Catholic Church says about that, define surrogacy and state what the Catholic Church says about that, and then define embryo adoption, and then talk about what we're finding in regards to how the catechism and how Donum Vitae addresses the idea of embryo adoption. Because it doesn't, of course, mention it by name. It was written prior to the concept even being introduced to the world, but it those teachings can speak to it still. So um, let's start with in vitro fertilization. Dr. X, can you give us a very brief definition for that? Well, in vitro fertilization is fertilization in a Petri dish. I've actually written a chapter in a book. It was an end word in the book is Conception, an Icon of the Beginning by Francis Etheridge and published by En Route. And people have been experiencing infertility throughout the history of the world and there have been people who have been longing for a child, but God created man and created reproduction, and it's meant to be the way God created it. So the fertilization outside of the woman's body, instead of fertilization taking place in vivo in the woman and instead in a Petri dish, was something that was finally successful with the birth of Louise Brown back in 1968, I believe it is. So it just revolutionized reproduction. And the big question was whether it was moral or not, right? ethical or not, to do something like this. And it wasn't until 1987, almost 20 years later, that the Catholic Church finally promulgated the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith Instruction Donum Vitae, which is titled, it has a longer title, The Vatican Instruction on Respect for Human Life in Its Origin and on the Dignity of Procreation, Replies to Certain Questions of the Day. Yeah. And it was issued on February 22nd. Now, this came also after Umane Vitae, which most people know as the Church teaching on contraception, artificial contraception. Because the human body, the human fertility cycle of a woman has built in (laughs) birth control. You know, you're only fertile for about a week, 10 days out of the month. So God provides for a natural spacing of pregnancies, but artificial contraception was new. And it took a while for the church to study the pros and the cons. And it was asking theologians and moralists and scripture scholars, philosophers, it's interdisciplinary, to submit their findings on should artificial contraception be moral or not. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time. And so I just want to begin by saying that right now, in vitro fertilization, IVF, and the other artificial or assisted reproduction techniques, ARTs, 
they've been studied and condemned with donum vitae. However, embryo adoption has not. It's an open issue to this day. And so my opinions and the opinions of anyone else (laughs) are really not the official teachings of the Catholic Church. The Church has not ruled on this yet. So it has ruled on artificial contraception. It has ruled on artificial reproduction. It has not ruled on embryo adoption. So I'd like to make that distinction at the very beginning. And these are my opinions. I'm not speaking for the Catholic Church. Other people who are opposed to embryo adoption are not speaking for the Catholic Church. It has not been settled. The Church has settled that artificial reproduction is illicit. So there's a big distinction, and there's a big question mark that the Church is inviting people, please study this, present your your views based on your research. So it's a very exciting topic and a very important topic. Yeah. So in vitro fertilization, when couples go through that, they oftentimes harvest from the woman lots of eggs. So they'll take a whole swath, so like 20 or so possibly, and then fertilize about that number so that now you have 20 children. You have fertilized the eggs with the sperm and now you have 20 embryos. And then they only implant a couple at a time. So like three or four. And so when we're talking embryo adoption, it's not that we're taking an embryo out of a woman's uterus and trying to implant that in another woman's uterus. We are talking about all of these embryos who have been created in Petri dishes, right? People who are living in glass and now have been frozen because they were not chosen to be implanted in that creating mother's womb. That's correct. And other countries have wrestled with this and they have issued laws that prohibit, it's not a perfectly Catholic law, but they prohibit fertilizing more than three eggs, three ova. That's it. Italy has done just that. But prior to Italy, uh, Germany in 1990 three years after Donum Vitae, and there are a lot of Catholics in Germany, so they got busy. (laughs) And they put their faith into law as best they could. They prohibited cryopreservation. Right, so we're no longer freezing people. they, They prohibited anything that would harm or kill an embryo. And they assigned not only uh, fines, but imprisonment if anyone harmed or killed an embryo. And what is not well known is that cryopreservation is so brutal that it kills up to 50% or more of the embryos uh, between the freezing and the thawing. They have to extract the water from these little embryos. They have to dip it in antifreeze. It's just brutal. Yeah. I can't imagine that being done to me. In fact, it is against the law for an adult who's Mm -hmm. maybe very sick and is contemplating cryopreservation for himself or herself. It's against the law. Yeah. You cannot freeze yourself. There is a law that prohibits it because it will cause most likely death, especially in adults. Right. They've found that some embryos can survive as long as 24 years. There was a little girl, Emma Wren Gibson. People can look her up. She was frozen as an embryo in 1992, and she was born a few days after Thanksgiving in 2017. 
yeah. more than 25 years later. I mean, that she was just dating for nine months, but she was adopted by a couple that was 26 years old. So these little embryos, some of them can survive. Thank goodness Hannah survived. Right, Hannah Stregge. 19 did not, even though six did survive the freezing and the thawing. I guess five were not able to implant themselves because it's a little embryo that implants itself in the mother's womb. And sometimes they've been abused, they've been harmed, and they just can't do it. You can imagine if you've been dipped in antifreeze, how good are you going to be at implanting yourself in a mom's womb? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Maybe not so good. (laughs) That seems like a bit of a hurdle to overcome. You know, these are things that people don't understand about IVF. They just know it's been successful for hundreds of thousands of children. Yeah. It had been born from IVF, but they don't realize the millions that were conceived in a petri dish and frozen and then abandoned, either discarded or given to destructive scientific research, millions that perish as a result of wanting a baby to love. And as much as we love children and we want to have a baby, my husband and I were suffering infertility as well. We got married when we were 40 years old and we wanted to start our family. But as you get older, it gets harder. So we looked into what could be the problem, and I actually had fibroids, so we got a good doctor, and we, I had to undergo surgery and remove the fibroids, and then that didn't work, you know, and it's heartache to go through month after month, you're hoping for a child, and nothing. So we looked not into IVF, but there are medical therapies to help fertility. Right, to so heal you your body. Conceive, naturally. So they can look at the man and see what can help him. They can look at me and see what can help me. And because I was older, we tried hyperovulation. So that's licit. My ovaries were shut down and then they were jump-started and that's how I produced a lot of eggs. (laughs) And so it can be monitored and they can tell you exactly what day to have natural intercourse. And we did it twice and nothing. So it didn't work. So now they told us, look into adoption. And we did. We just started looking into adoption, completely lost track of everything related to natural procreation. And all of a sudden, I realized I'd missed my period. So we checked and bingo, I was (laughs) pregnant and we couldn't believe it. I was 44 and I went home. I stayed at home. It's very hard to have a child in your old age. Looking into adoption has helped so many people conceive naturally. I've had so many friends and others just say, that happened to me. Either you adopt and then you have children or you look into adoption and you become pregnant. So adoption is a wonderful choice. There's a reason that infertility happens. God knows. He blesses us with a cross. I always see God's hand at work in those kinds of contradictions. We need to trust God. He is the giver of life. And so many children who need to be adopted. And it's very hard to adopt a newborn. There are no newborns. A baby is aborted every 30 to 40 seconds. It's just unbelievable, 3,000 a day. And those that are born and are placed for adoption are so rare it can take 10 to 20 years to adopt a newborn. Yeah, waiting that long. And you, you can look into international adoption, uh, but that also is very hard, very expensive. And yet there are these millions of frozen embryos. So Marlene and her husband, John, knew about this. 
and looked into adopting these embryos. And it could be a wonderful way for Catholics and Christians to try to adopt these abandoned, many times abandoned, frozen embryos. So it is something that the Catholic Church has not rejected. And in fact, there are two documents. One was Donum Vitae, and we can talk about that one. That's a kind of a specialty of mine. But there was also, in 2008, Dignitas Personae. And in 2008, which was nine years after Hannah's birth, and many other children have been adopted as frozen embryos, this issue was a very important issue for the Church to address. But they punted. So even in Dignitas Personae, one of the major topics was what should be done with millions of frozen embryos. And it did not answer that question. Yeah. And so the Office of Media Relations of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops issued a press release when Dignitas Personae was promulgated on December 12th. And it titles the press release, Dignitas Personae, Vatican Instruction on Bioethics, Welcomed for Guidance on Issues of Procreation Medical Research. <laughs> but it doesn't give any guidance, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. It does say, and the USCCB summarized their position by saying, embryo adoption, the document does not reject the practice outright, but warns of medical, psychological, and legal problems associated with it and underscores the moral wrong of producing and freezing embryos in the first place. Right. And then the quotation is, cryopreservation is incompatible with the respect owed to human embryos, the instruction reads. So this was taken from their press release, and a Catholic news service in Rome said the same thing. The president of the Pontifical Academy for Life also said that the practice was not prohibited. But now cryopreservation is prohibited, and there they are. All those millions of frozen embryos, what should be done? And is embryo adoption moral and licit? So that has been my passion for the past almost 15 years. And even though I work full-time, I have taught for five years, and I have published. And I published an article in the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly called The Magisterial Lyceity or Licitness of embryo transfer. Mm -hmm. I didn't say embryo adoption because as moralists and ethicists know, the end does not justify the means. Right. And the means to embryo adoption is embryo transfer. So you got to deal with that first. So embryo transfer, I think, holds the key to the licitness of embryo adoption because adoption is praiseworthy. Uh, Dignitas Personae actually says that that adoption, the church has always praised and supported and encouraged. It's just, can embryos be adopted? And I came upon, I thank God for my adopted son, and I was helping him with his homework one day. We were going through the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I was concerned about this issue. And lo and behold, it's right in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And if you and your listeners would like to look it up, it's number 2275. And it says, quote, one must hold 
as licit procedures carried out on the human embryo which respect the life and integrity of the embryo and do not involve disproportionate risks for it, but are directed towards its healing, the improvement of its condition of health, or its individual survival. And it quotes Donum Vitae. And so I thought, oh my gosh. Well, and then it goes on that these medical procedures must be considered licit because number 2274, just before it, since it must be treated from conception, fertilization, since it must be treated from conception as a person, the embryo must be defended in its integrity, cared for and healed as far as possible like any other human being. Right. Those two numbers in the Catechism of the Catholic Church are magisterium. It's the magisterium of the Catholic Church. And it cites Donum Vitae. And I thought, here it is. It's licit. And that's what I make a strong case, that because it is licit, and because embryo adoption is not an artificial reproduction technique, because reproduction has already taken place. Right. Conception is the right line of separation. Before conception, before fertilization, you have gametes. You have the eggs and the sperm at fertilization. And there is an instant of fertilization. We've now documented that zinc spark, which was first observed. It was a dye. It was viewed with a special microscope which showed millions, if not billions, of zinc ions breaking through the membrane of the little ovum that has just been fertilized and hardening the membrane to block any other sperm from entering. It's called polyspermic block. That instant, it was called zinc spark, is the inorganic signature of egg activation. And egg activation is another (laughs) term for fertilization, which is another term for conception. So after fertilization, you know, they're trying to cover up that the beginning of life is egg activation (laughs) by the sperm. It doesn't sound like conception, which we've always believed that life is sacred from conception until natural death. But clearly, that is the moment, the first instant of conception And from then on, it's an organism. There's a difference between cells and organisms. Right. Organisms, that one new cell, the two become one flesh. And when they make contact, it then instantly creates this zinc spark, which some call the spark of life. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Dr. Rex. We really appreciate your input on this and sort of the history that you were able to provide us. And hopefully as the conversation goes on, we can spark more and more people looking into it and talking about it and sharing what has come of it so far. Very good. You've been listening to I Choose Life News and Views. If you have questions about this program or if you'd like to support the fight for life, please call 260-471-1849 or go to ichooselife.org because without the right to life, no other rights matter.